before we begin today, I want to do some Bible trivia with you because I found this interesting, okay? So um, a little Bible trivia. Do you know what the shortest chapter of the Bible is? Anybody know? It is Psalm 117, okay? Um, Do you know what the longest chapter of the Bible is? A lot of you know this one, Psalm 119. Do you know what the very middle chapter of the Bible is? The chapter of the Bible uh, that is in the center of the Bible. Do you know what that is? Psalm 118. Very good. Now, do you know how many chapters are on either side of Psalm 118? Probably not. 594 chapters are on both sides of Psalm 118. Now, if you add those up, what do you get, you math people out there? You get 1,188. Now, do you know what the middle verse of the Bible is, the very middle of the Bible? Psalm 118.8. Pretty cool, right? Now, do you know what the theological significance of all that information is? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nothing. It's just interesting. And all that to say, we're going to be in Psalm 118 today, okay? Um, So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Psalm 118. And so let me say a little bit about this psalm before I read it to you. Uh, The psalm we are looking at today is arguably the most important song ever sung in history. It is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. And if you think about the fact that within the Jewish calendar, they sang this song multiple times a year throughout their history and still do today. Psalm 118 is the last of a series of psalms that would be sung at the Feast of the Passover, for example. And at the Passover, they would sing and still sing five songs. So from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And the first two songs would be sung before the meal, and the last four would be sung after. It's referred to as the Egyptian Hallel, okay? So if you consider that, this psalm is probably one of the most sung songs in history. After all those times, all those feasts, and they still sing it, this song puts Taylor Swift to shame. It does. Um, And it's also significant, this psalm, because it's the last song that Jesus ever sang. It's the last song that Jesus ever sang in his life. That is, Jesus celebrated the Passovers with his disciples the night before he was betrayed. It says that they sung a hymn, and we're pretty confident that this is the song that they sang. And so that makes you pause, right? To ask the question, okay, what was in the last song that Jesus ever sang? So Psalm 118, if you open up your Bible right to the middle, you'll probably be somewhere close to it. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we are going to pray. So Psalm 118, verse 1, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, uh, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord 
than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, and they went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So today we are going to look at three different things in this psalm, okay? The first that we're going to look at is Psalm 118 in its Old Testament context. What did it mean for those that read it when it was originally written? And then second, we're going to look at what it meant in the life of Jesus. How is this psalm connected to Jesus? And then third, we're going to ask the question, okay, what does it mean for us on a Resurrection Sunday? What does it mean for us. So first, we're going to look at its Old Testament context. There are three movements in this psalm. In the first four verses, um, there is a call to worship, okay? We see that God is calling these people to worship. And then verses 5 through 18, you have the king recounting some kind of military rescue, some kind of miraculous moment. There's a military engagement and the Lord leads them to victory. And then in verses 19 through 28, you have the king and all of his entourage show up at the gates of the temple. And there is a celebration that takes place. And victory is really the main theme of this psalm. It's the opposite of what we looked at last week with Psalm 22, where Psalm 22 is about God's silence and, and God forsaking, God's forsaking the writer. Psalm 22 is a heavy psalm. And this psalm is a joyous song. It's a victory psalm. There is triumph. There is celebration. And I don't know if you caught it, but it's an upbeat song, right? It starts with a call to praise. He says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then he says, let Israel say. So that's all the Jewish people. So let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, that's all the priests, all the leadership. Let the the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Then he says, all the Gentiles, that's those who fear the Lord, that's referred to, that's known as the Gentiles. And so try to picture a crowd of people singing this song, okay? Someone out front trying to amp them up. They're calling them to worship. And he's like, hey, Israel, praise the Lord. Hey, house of Aaron, 
Praise the Lord. Hey, Gentiles, praise the Lord. I would not be a good hype guy, right? But it's an exciting and joyful start to the psalm. Now, if you look closely in your Bible, what is the theme that is being communicated in these first four verses? It's really difficult to see it. It's that God's steadfast love endures forever. It's not complicated, right? But that phrase, his love endures forever, is a theme all throughout your Bible. In fact, if you flipped over to Psalm 136, you would see that that phrase is repeated 26 times in one psalm. And we read that phrase, and for so many of us, it's just like, okay, yeah, okay, God loves us. We get it. Move on to the next section. That that, The reality is that his steadfast love endures forever. That phrase doesn't stun us. It doesn't make us stop in our tracks and go, what, what? Like, wait a minute, he, he, his love endures forever? And the reason is that the word, that word love that you see here in Psalm 118, it's different than the word love that we use in our English language. It's not a general use of the word love. It's a very specific kind of love that God has. It's the word chesed. And I practiced saying that this week. It's the word chesed. It means loyal love. That's what it means here. When you see the word love in Psalm 118, his steadfast love endures forever. It's the word chesed, loyal love. And you can't use the word chesed like we would use the word love. Like you would never say, man, I really chesed Panda Express. You would never say that. You would never say, "Um, dude, like I chesed that shirt, right? It just, it just doesn't work like that. The closest thing we have to it is the word marriage, That when you get married, you bind yourself to someone. You say it maybe with your mouth, but whether or not it's really registering in your mind what's happening on your wedding day, that you say for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. If we're rich or if we're poor, doesn't matter the situation, I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. We make a covenant that we will have chesed with one another, loyal love. That's what they are singing about here. The reality that God has had loyal love for them. And then in verse 5, he begins testifying. There's someone steps up and they begin testifying. He says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That he starts talking about this moment where he was in distress, where he was in trouble, and he called on the Lord to help, and God showed up. It's not like last week where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I called on the Lord and the Lord showed up. He showed me that he is on my side, so I will have no fear. Man can't touch me because I have God at my side. No human being can hurt me because God is with me. And so he says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. He says that the only true refuge is God, the only one that people will let us down, stuff will let us down, our expectations for future success will let us down. The only true refuge is God. Presidents and kings will let us down. But then in verse 13, he gets real specific about his situation. He says, the nations surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. I hate bees. He says, I was pushed hard. I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And here is he's recounting a military moment. He's like, it wasn't looking good. I mean, we were surrounded. They were were all over me like bees, but the Lord, the Lord helped me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. 
And so if you're sitting in the crowd in this moment and you're a cynical person, which I know we don't have any of those, if you're a cynical person, you're like, okay, so God saved you that one time, what makes you think he's going to save you the next time? Or what makes you think that he's going to save me? Well, he does something very interesting in the next verse, in verse 14. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He quotes from Exodus 14. Exodus 14, it's the victory song that the people of God sang right after they crossed the Red Sea. It's the oldest song in their nation's history. And if you read the book of Exodus, the people of God were enslaved in Egypt and God sent plague after plague after plague until Pharaoh agreed to let them go. And then God let the people of Israel in circles until they got to the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh decides that he wants to destroy the people of Israel. So they've got the Red Sea on one side and they've got an army coming to the other and they've got nowhere to go. It's either death by the sword or death by the ocean. And so they've got no hope, no hope. No way to get out. And then God parted the sea, and they walked through on dry land. And when they got to the other side, they sang, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That here in Psalm 118, he's reminding them, this isn't the first time that God has done this. This is who God is. It's chesed. It's loyal love. He did it. Then, when he parted the Red Sea, and he did it again today. And so he says, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. That he says, the victory isn't just for me, but it's for us. That the victory may have been won single-handedly, but we all share in the victory. And so he says, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And then verse 17, he says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That this is what happens. This is what happens when you realize that you had no hope, that it was done, that you were surrounded, that you were in despair, and God showed up and he rescued you. And then in verse 19, you see a transition to the third movement. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And this is when we realize that this is a processional song. It's, it's communicating a triumph. That the way a triumph would work is when your king rode out to battle, when he went to go meet a hostile nation, you knew that either the king would return in victory or the enemy would come to destroy you, and so you waited. You waited to see if the king would return or if the enemy would come. And if the king returns, it's a triumph. It's a victory, not just for the king, but for everyone. And when the king returned, there would be a massive celebration. You would make a path from the outside of the city to the temple, right? And everyone would celebrate the king's return. Everyone would gather and sing songs, and they would wait for the king. And as he passed, they would follow him into the temple, and they would celebrate the king's victory. So he says, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And you go, okay, that word righteous here, it's plural. So you say, well, who are they? Who, who are these righteous that are entering with the king? Well, it's everyone who rode and walks with the king. That the victory isn't just for the king, but for everyone who trusts 
and the king that joy is available for those who ride and walk with the king. And so he says, I thank you that you have answered me. You become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying what looked like it was humiliated is now honored. It's now honored. I'm going to, say, I'm going to wait to talk about that verse a little bit later. And the rest of the psalm is just this guy celebrating God's victory. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. This is the day that the, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then he says, "Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." They're saying we needed rescuing and God provided a rescuer. Blessed is he. You see it? God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God help us. Thank you you brought him. Right? They look to the king and they say, Save us, God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We were asking for salvation, and you brought it through the king. And he says, the Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And the rest of the psalm is him praising God. So that's Psalm 118. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? Well, a lot, actually. <laughs> All four Gospels describe the moment when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem. That when Jesus showed up, he was at the height of his ministry. That for three years, he had been preaching, healing. Just a few days before he shows up in Jerusalem, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you want to get popular quick, raise a dead guy, right? And all four Gospels t- tell us of the moment that Jesus showed up at the outskirts of Jerusalem. And John 12, 12, it'll be on the screen. It says, the next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, um, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. Now, as Jesus is coming, why are they grabbing branches of palm trees? Well, palm trees was a sign of uh, nationalistic pride. They were the symbol of the people of Israel. The idea was that when they celebrated the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, They would build little shelters with roofs made of palm branches to remember when the people of Israel were set free from Egypt that as they were in the wilderness, they would make shelters with palm branches. Um, And so palm branches became associated with God's liberation of his people. That later, this is fascinating, uh, when Simon of Maccabees drives out the Syrian forces later in their history, the people waved palm branches as they fled. I just think that's funny. Um, But it was pride in who they were as a people. And in this moment, they start quoting our psalm, Psalm 118 in verse 13. It says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We just read that. Hosanna is a Greek word that is translated from the Hebrew phrase, Hoshia na, save us, please. In Psalm 118.25, they say, save us, we pray, O Lord. And then in John, it says they add on, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they meet Jesus at the outskirts of Jerusalem. They grab palm branches, the symbol of victory, and they quote the triumph portion of the victory song of Israel. They are saying, Lord, we want salvation. And they look at Jesus and they say, you brought it. You see it? Traditionally, when the people of Israel would sing Psalm 118, all the men and the boys would chant, Hoshia, 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 
And they understood that this is the psalm that we sing when victory has come. And when Jesus rode in, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they believed that Psalm 118 was about him. That's why they add in even the king of Israel. Jesus is coming to bring victory that we can all share in. And this isn't the first time that they've tried to crown Jesus king. You remember when he fed the 5,000? It says, after that, they tried to crown him king and Jesus withdrew. So the question is, what is Jesus going to do now? Is he going to embrace that title of king? Well, in verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt, on a donkey's colt. Now, at this point, Jesus would have been two miles from the temple. He didn't need to ride there. He just didn't need to. He walked everywhere. He didn't ride. And John tells us that he rides this donkey into the temple, and then he walks back out at the end of the day, only to walk back into the temple the next day. So at face value, it would seem that it's unnecessary that he would ride a donkey into the temple. It wasn't because he was tired. It's not like he just wanted to get an Uber, like, hey, you guys want to catch a donkey, right? It's, it's not what's happening here. So why the donkey? Well, we can't unpack all of it. It was to fulfill Zechariah. It was also to show that he was a humble king. But for our context here in Psalm 118, Jesus understood who is received in the city like this riding on a horse or a donkey. Who's received like this with palm branches? The king is. The king, that when everyone's chanting Hoshiana, it was his declaration to them, yes, I am your king. I am the king, and through me, I will open the door for the righteous. If you ride with me, you will have victory. And in fact, in Luke, the Pharisees come out, and they tell him to tell everyone to stop. Luke 19.39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He says, if I tell them to stop, then the rocks will worship in their place. That's an incredibly arrogant thing to say. Unless it's true. You don't think I'm worthy, brother? All of creation knows who I am. I'm the king. And then Jesus walks into the, ta- the temple, and he begins to clean house. The temple, it had a very large outer court called the court of the Gentiles, which means ethne. So it's the court of the nations, that this court was built so that people from all nations could come and meet God. And during Passover, it was estimated that there were over 2 million people coming into Jerusalem. And all the business operations of the temple were handled in the outer Court. So when Jesus walked into the temple, he would have seen a, a massive amount of people buying and selling animals, exchanging currency. There would be thousands of people with thousands of animals. That During the Passover week, it's estimated that 255,000 lambs were brought, bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple. You think this is crazy in here, loud with kids? And all? Imagine thousands of animals running around, Right? It would be chaos, and the temple was the political, economical, and religious center of the city. It was a massive operation, and Jesus shuts it down at Passover, the busiest time of the year. It's like walking into Walmart on Black Friday and shutting it down. There's going to be some people that are upset, and he quotes from Isaiah. He says, my house will be called the house of prayer 
for the nations. And then he quotes Jeremiah and he says, you have made it a den for robbers. And then Jesus begins to heal the blind and the lame in the temple. And all the children start singing Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees, they come to him and they tell him to stop. Tell those kids to stop singing. And he says, out of the mouths of babes and out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. It's pretty arrogant. God has prepared my praise in these babies' mouths. It's pretty arrogant, unless it's true. And then he turns to the Pharisees and he tells them a story. And the story that Jesus tells sums up your entire Bible. Mark 12, verse 1. This will be on the screen. So this is the story that he tells the Pharisees. He says, he began to speak them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, there's a lot here in this first verse, but all we need to know right now is that the man who built this vineyard built it in such a way that it has everything it needs to succeed. There is no reason that this thing should fail. And the other thing is that all of this wording in verse 1, Mark 12, 1, is found in Isaiah 5, which is known as the song of the vineyard, where God is portrayed as the planter, and the vineyard is the people of God, okay? Now, in verse 2, it says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So in our context and culture, this would be like if you rented a house, and your landlord sent someone to collect the rent. You are, the, you are paying the owner a fee to live in that place. And this would have been understood as a completely normal thing. But verse 3 says, They took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, if you're listening to this, you don't believe that. That's an unbelievable thing to happen, especially in an honor-shame culture. You didn't do that. You didn't disrespect the owner, and you didn't shame yourself like that. Try that with your landlord sometimes. And as he comes to collect the rent, you're like, no way, get out of here. That wouldn't go well for you. So the question in everyone's mind is, okay, what is the owner going to do? How is he going to respond? Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And so the picture here is that all throughout the Old Testament, God has been sending prophet after prophet after prophet. They're telling the people the words of God, and the leadership either rejects them, beats them, or kills them. And God's word is rejected over and over. But then verse 6, it says he still had, he had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They say, this is the son of the owner, let's murder him and let's get the inheritance. And in verse 8, it says, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And so Jesus asked the question that everyone's thinking, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What looked like it was humiliated is now honored. And so at this point, we have to ask the question, what's the deal with the cornerstone? What is that about? All of this, everything, revolves around the word we talked about earlier, 
chesed, God's loyal love. That all the way back in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great nation and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so in Genesis 15, it gets kind of crazy. So I just wanna warn you. God tells Abraham to start gathering animals. Let me just read it to you. Okay, and then we'll talk about it. So don't leave. Uh, Genesis 15, seven, it says, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you, talking to Abraham, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. And you're like, how did we get here so quickly from the cornerstone to animals being cut in half? What is happening at Renewal Church, right? Well, this is a cultural thing that Abraham understood that we don't. This was the practice of making a covenant, that you would cut up animals, line them up with an aisle in the middle, and the idea was that you are acting out the consequences if you fail to keep up your end of the covenant. This was called the passing through the pieces, that you would take an animal, cut it in half, and you would walk through the pieces of the animal. This would happen with lords and peasants all the time, that the Lord would promise to protect and provide for the peasant, and the peasant would swear loyalty to the Lord, and they would swear to one another as they were walking through the pieces of the animal that if they didn't keep their end, that that would happen to them. You see it explained in Jeremiah 34, it says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So in Genesis 15, the intention is for God and Abraham to make a covenant together by walking through the pieces. And so he tells them to start gathering the animals. And either, if either of them would break their commitment, their covenant, their vow, then they are declaring, may this happen to me, may I be torn in two. But then when it gets time for them to pass through the pieces together, something weird happens. In Genesis 15, 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. God makes Abraham fall asleep. And then God shows up in verse 17. And what he does in this moment is one of the most important moments in your entire Bible. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And anytime God was present in the Old Testament, there would be fire and smoke. It was the burning holiness of God and the mystery of God. And God doesn't look at a sleeping Abraham and say, hey, it's time to get up and do this thing. What does he do? He passes through the pieces alone. And there we have the heart of the gospel. He says, Abraham, if I break my covenant to you, then may this be done to me. May I be ripped apart. And Abraham, if you break your covenant to me, may this be done to me. May I be ripped apart. May the God of the universe be ripped apart if you're disobedient. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Does God keep his promise? Yes, God keeps his chesed, his loyal love, that time and time again, he provides for his people. But do the people of God keep their end of the covenant? No, no, they don't. The story of the Old Testament is God's faithfulness to his people while they are unfaithful to him. And so Jesus leaves the temple 
And he goes and sits at the Passover meal with his disciples. We know it as the Last Supper. And at that Passover meal, there was a script that you were supposed to follow as the presider of the meal. That script didn't change. It was the same for thousands of years, and everyone knew the script. All the disciples had done it since they were kids. And Jesus grabs the bread, and typically the presider over the Passover meal would look back at this point, and they would say, this is the bread of the affliction of our fathers when they were enslaved in Egypt. But in Mark 14.22, it says he took the bread, and after blessing He broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He says, this is my affliction. This is my body broken for you. This isn't their affliction. This is my affliction. And then Jesus took the wine and you were supposed to say in that moment, may the all merciful one make us worthy of the day of the Messiah, that they would look forward to the day that someone would come to save them. But Jesus doesn't look forward. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Chesed, loyal love. Essentially, he says, you have been waiting for thousands of years for someone to come, and I'm here. The king has ridden into town, and we will all share in the victory. This is my blood poured out. I am the cornerstone. This whole thing is built on me. That's what he's saying. This whole thing is built on me. I will spill my blood so that we can all share in the victory. I am the king, and who rides with me enters the gate of righteousness. Typically, there was a fourth cup that would come out of this meal, a cup that portrayed a future renewed relationship together, that all things will be made new. But Jesus doesn't bring out that cup. He makes a proclamation that that cup is coming soon. He says in 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And he grabs that cup and he says, not yet. That he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to rise. And that when all is finished, then he will drink that cup. All will be restored soon, so he waits. So he puts down that cup and they sing Psalm 118. And with that context in mind, Let me read a few of the verses of Psalm 118. I want you to imagine what it would be like to sit there after hearing Jesus say, this is my blood of the covenant, and singing that song with the king right in front of you. Verse one, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, and his steadfast love was standing right in front of them. Psalm 118.5, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Verse 20, this is the gate of, of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. Do you think they understood that when when Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and when they sang, this is the gate, that they understood that was the same person? They are literally singing, this is the gate, and the righteous shall enter through him. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then they said, think about, they sang this. The night before Jesus was to be crucified, they sang, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You think they understood? Verse 25, save us, we pray. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. And then two verses later, they say, the Lord is God, and he has made his light. Literally, Jesus in front of them, his light to shine Upon us. And then they say, bind the festal sacrifice with cords. 
They're literally looking at the victory lamb. That the celebration is all revolved around the king who would be the sacrifice. And they say, bind up the lamb. He is the cornerstone. And they sang that song and they walked out to the Garden of Gethsemane. They sang, bind the festal sacrifice, and they walked out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. What does that mean for us? What does all that mean for us? On Acts 4, Peter is being questioned by the rulers for healing a lame man. And he says to the religious leaders in Acts 4.10, he says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And here's the reality for us. If Jesus would have remained in that tomb, he would have been just another arrogant dude who thought too much about himself. If he would have remained in that tomb, then everything he said about himself would have been forgotten. But his death was not the end of the story. His resurrection became the church's anthem of victory. That as Peter and Paul and Timothy and so many others suffered for the sake of Christ, they walked in confidence because they saw their king beat death. They saw the victory lamb. And they worshiped. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That the reality is we will suffer in this life. We will suffer. We will hurt. And in this time between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, it won't be easy. And the flesh and the world will try to convince us that we don't need him, that he isn't actually that good But the resurrection shows that death was not the end. And death will not be the end for us. That we look forward to a day, a day when all will be renewed, a day when he will drink that fourth cup. Like literally, Revelation says, he will make all things new. That one day we will join the anthem of the angels and the saints in heaven. We're about to sing a song called Hymn of Heaven, and in that song, it says, on that day, we join the resurrection. We stand beside the heroes of the faith, and with one voice, a thousand generations will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. A thousand generations from all nations, tribes, and tongues that we all get to share in the victory. And so we live today with hope, with hope, that is set on the reality of a victorious king who spilled his blood, who bought us with a price, who beat death and rose from the grave. And so let me close by saying, say this with me, because this is our anthem, and it gives us confidence, it gives us hope, it casts out fear. And so we say this together as a church, not because we want to feel better about ourselves or because we want anything from God. We say this together as a church because this is our anthem that we walk in. So we say, he is risen. And then you say, that's our anthem because it's true and because we cannot do this without him.
we get hope, joy, and confidence because he rose from the grave. He's a victorious king, and all the righteous enter through him. He's the victory lamb.